The Way Out Podcast, episode 293. What is your name? I am Karen, Karen Hardwick. Karen, how long have you been in recovery? 15 years. 15 years of continuous recovery. That's absolutely fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you, Charlie. How do you serve the recovery community, Karen? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I tell my story in Hmm. ways that are appropriate publicly. I do that in ways that are appropriate in the public arena, Charlie. And also I attend meetings. I sponsor people. I lead meetings. I clean up after meetings. I do all the things that bring um, people sense of hope. And all of those ways are the ways in which afford others to also understand that recovery is available to them as well. And those are powerful ways to serve the recovery community. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, service is a really big part of keeping us humble, right? Mm. One of my favorite words, Hmm. humility. Um, There's so much strength and healing in that word. No doubt. So it really is an important part. And being of service, in my experience, affords me the ability to be connected. It gives me the connection that I need on a regular basis. You know, connection is connection is my thing. It is, um, isn't it? It is my thing. So I just love the power of connection. And um, oh, here's the thing about connection that really works for me. We cannot connect to other people in really healthy ways until we learn to connect to ourselves in rigorously honest Mm. ways. Mm. So a lot of people think that they're connecting when they might be just going through the motions. There's so many things that get in the way of us powerfully connecting with others if we're dishonest with ourselves about ourselves if we're wearing masks if we're um, feeling like we have to perform or hustle for approval that all gets in the way of having healthy sustainable connections and you and i both know that connection is the antidote to addiction right indeed yeah it reminds me karen that when I first came into the rooms, I heard a tradition that was really important to me, which was the only requirement for membership was a desire to stop drinking and using, right? So I could then feel like, even though I was feeling pretty lousy about myself when I first came in, And I hadn't done any of the work. So I had all these skeletons in my closet. And the persistent thought that haunted me for decades, which was, if you knew who I really was, if you knew the real me, 
you wouldn't like me. You wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. But then I heard that all that was required from me was a desire, which I had finally. And then I heard other people share authentically and vulnerably about their own experience. And it gave me permission to do the same for the very first time share openly and honestly about the things I had done the things I had thought and the things I had felt and I didn't get judged for it I got loved for it and that then gave me the opportunity to stop judging myself for it which gets down to that honesty of self so that I could really connect to people. And that was the connection I so desperately needed. I tried to connect before and it didn't work. Until I could strip away those layers, get really vulnerable. Because the folks in the rooms gave me permission to do so. Takes a lot of courage to walk into those rooms. Whatever it is that brings us into those rooms, we are doing something so incredibly different when we walk in. We're opening ourselves up. We're willing, willing, right? To figure out there's gotta be some other way to mm. do this because I'm really sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm -hmm. Mm. So that self-connection, I think, is so very important. Something inside of us, Charlie, um, says there is a different way. You don't have to do this anymore. So when we walk in those rooms, whatever it is that catapults us into the room, sometimes it's just our own choice. Sometimes it's other people telling us we have to go. Whatever the case may be, there's something telling us that there's a different way. And connecting to that inner voice is really important. Without question. And we're afforded that opportunity when we make the choice to do something different, get out of that comfort zone, get vulnerable, get honest, and start authentically and meaningfully making connection with others. Karen, what does recovery mean to you? So I'm talking about recovery, Charlie, from the family side. Mm. Which I love because we don't get a lot of that on the Way Out podcast. So I am so, so happy to have you on to talk about the family side of recovery. So, so important and really a valuable message for us. It's really important to me to be honest about the fact that alcoholism and addiction is a family disease. Mm -hmm. It is a disease of relationships, of disease, meaning that people who are not comfortable in their own skin and then use substances for whatever reason, whatever those substances are, there are so many different layers of impact on the people around them. And there's a solution for all of that. I mean, us family members, in order to take care of ourselves, can get 
really super clear about the things that we're doing that could possibly be contributing to the addictive processes. So we didn't cause it and we can't control it and we sure as hell can't cure it. Mm. But there are ways through our behaviors as loved ones that we might be contributing to it. Mm. And mm. what do we have to do as family members to reclaim our own lives and love the people in the family who are using st- substances in a different way than we have been because it was surely not working. Mm. That could be a difficult process to lovingly detach and take a hard look at ourselves we're so used to in that dynamic focusing on the addict or the alcoholic and they're the problem and if they would just shape up and if they would just do this and if they would just do that or stop doing this then everything would be okay they're the problem and certainly the addict and the alcoholic has problems karen but it can be hard to look at ourselves from the family side right hard and absolutely necessary. I mean, Charlie, it brings us to our knees because I like to call myself a recovering higher power. Mm. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. It, it, because I honestly thought I could save people. For goodness sakes, I could love you enough. Yeah. I could love you in a way that you've never been loved before. You will not know what hit you. It will make everything okay. Mm-hmm. I can love you. I can rescue you. I can fix you. Mm. And none of those things can be done. Mm. None of them. And so I had to let go and let God be God and figure a way to be caring. Let God be God and have myself just work on being caring. And one of the things that I've learned over many, many moons is no one wants to be saved. No one wants to be fixed. No one wants to be rescued. In fact, you throw a life preserver to an addict or an alcoholic and they will say typically to you, what else do you have? I know. <laughs> right? <laughs> Exactly Is that all you correct. got? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was hoping for a bigger one. So, yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> or lots a, of them. Right. Lots you threw me a life preserver and I was hoping for a raft or a yacht. Yeah, a yacht. Preferably a yacht. <laughs> a yacht yeah. would have been better. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And it reminds me of the saying that I heard early on in recovery is that I needed to know two things about a higher power. There is one and I'm not it. For sure. And you know, the Hebrew word humility, I led a meeting this morning on humility and the Hebrew word for humility actually means when translated, breaking down the walls between me and God. Mm. So think about that. You break down the walls between you and God and you're standing in the presence of God. You're surely recognizing at that, at, at that point, I am not that. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
So I think for us family members, and it's so important that we talk about this because us family members have to start getting honest and real and open and vulnerable about what this does to the family. And as family members, we have the opportunity and the ability to get well. We do. Regardless of what the addict or alcoholic chooses to do or not do. Regardless, and that is heartbreak, right? I mean, it's that, you know, for, again, for decades, I used to think, well, if they, they, all those other people would get better, I wouldn't have to do anything differently. I wouldn't have to do the hard work of getting well, of realizing that I was hustling for approval, that I was hoping my love could be so transformative for somebody else that I would feel loved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just hitting the pause button and realizing the best thing that I can do for somebody I love who's suffering from the disease of addiction is I can get well. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this rendition of The Way Out, I'm beyond excited to bring you an exceptional interview with person in long-term recovery on the family side and author of The Connected Leader, Seven Strategies to Empower Your True Self and Inspire Others, Karen Hardwick. 
Karen shares with us her journey to and through recovery to this point and embodied with it an empowering message of the power of connection. Karen shares how only authentic connection to our true selves and inner truth can result in genuine connection to others, which is in many ways the antidote to addiction. The Way Out Faithful will recall the familiar refrain of what the 12 steps remedy on a macro level, and in a word, it's relationships. First, we address our problematic relationship with substances, behaviors, or people. That's step one. Next, we address our relationship with a power greater than ourselves. That's the second and third steps. In steps four through seven, we address our relationship with ourselves. Then, and only then, can we repair and build genuine relationships with others, because we're connecting from our authentic selves, which creates the kind of pure acceptance that cannot be imitated by any substance or addictive behavior. We then have the opportunity to take this relationship transformation to the next level, which is all about continuing the process we started of embracing our true selves in systematically discarding counterproductive thought and behavior patterns, flaws or character defects, if you will, that get in the way of true connection to ourselves and others. Karen likes to call this being flossom. Our flaws, which are often rooted in big or small traumas, reveal the ways in which we have opportunities to grow in our recovery. To be sure, the 12 steps aren't the only way to do this important work, as we've highlighted on this podcast in a variety of ways and will continue to do so. Dating way back to our hunter and gatherer days, we've been biologically programmed to seek this sort of authentic connection for our very survival, because not being accepted into a group then meant certain death from predators or starvation. This fundamental drive is just as important to our well-being today as it was then, because the lack of connection and acceptance can wreak havoc on us in myriad ways, mentally, emotionally, and physically. Karen shares how we can make the daily, active decision to lean into and indeed embrace our true selves, and begin the transformational journey of authentically connecting to ourselves and others so that we can truly recover and, if we choose, become connected leaders for ourselves and the people we surround ourselves with. So listen up. Karen Hardwick, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Way Out podcast. I can't wait to dig into your recovery journey up to this point, talk about this amazing book that you wrote, The Connected Leader. And I think the title's a little misleading, and we're going to talk about that because we all have a preconceived notion of what a leader is. But we're going to unpack the word leader a little bit as we traverse our discussion. Before we do any of that, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the way out podcast you're a person in long-term recovery you're the author of this great new book introduce yourself 
Oh, Charlie, it's really good to be here with you today. I love talking about recovery and I love the opportunity to talk about recovery from a family perspective. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do. It is one of the great joys of my life to be honest and open and willing to share whatever I can share appropriately. Um, and my day job is being a leadership consultant to leaders all around the world. And as a clinically trained and spiritually trained leadership coach, I help leaders at all levels of organizations lead from a lead from an emotional and spiritual wholeness. So I talk about recovery with leaders and I talk about recovery in broad terms because we're all recovering mm. from something. And it's just delightful to be here with you today. We are all in recovery from one thing or another. I'm truly convinced of that the longer I am on this planet. Why don't you take a moment to share a little bit about your journey to recovery up to this point? How did you encounter addiction in your life or alcoholism? And how did that manifest? And how did you get to a point where you entered recovery? So I like to say that my family tree has its roots resting in a vat of alcohol. <laughs> so I come by this recovery business honestly because addiction and alcoholism is on every family branch for generations. Yeah. And when you grow up in the disease, it impacts, it impacted me in ways that I was not even aware of until I was in my adult years. Cause I was just doing whatever I needed to do to, to earn love and to show love. So I learned to be a caretaker very young, yeah. to take care of the adults, to do adult things as a child, to do whatever I could do to help people sidestep the consequences of their own actions. You had to grow up really fast, it sounds like. I grew up very fast, Charlie. At the age of 10, I was functioning as, a, as an adult. My mother was terminally ill mm -hmm. and um, was the daughter of an alcoholic. And, you know, there's there was just so much going on in our family that was about the ism of alcoholism, even if we weren't actively drinking. Mm -hmm. It's It really reaches its tentacles out in ways that people are not even aware of. So it wasn't until I got into my adult life and found myself still surrounded by people in active addiction or abstinent, but not emotionally and spiritually healing yeah. that I realized that my life behind closed doors was one of desperation it was very difficult for me to have boundaries. I thought I had to save people and rescue people. I didn't feel loved. I was searching for intimacy. And while I was professionally successful and doing all the things that from the outside world looked good, there was something inside of me that really was not working. So into the rooms I went. Um, and my first meeting 
it was like a light went on. That was 15 years ago. One of the things that you say as you describe growing up in this chaos of active ism, it's like being a fish in water and you just don't realize you're in water because you've been water all your life and it's just the way it's always been until you know you traverse life long enough to get the recognition that it doesn't have to be that way, that life doesn't have to be that way, that I don't have to be this way, that my default mode of operation doesn't have to be this way anymore. And maybe there's a different way to live. Well, there is a different way to live. And it takes a tremendous amount of courage to surrender to the fact that I've been in this water my whole life and this water is not what I need. I mean, in, in some ways I'm a fish in water, but I need to figure out some other body to be swimming in mm-hmm. because this water is really toxic. Right. Right. So it's taking one step at a time. It's that it's humbling ourselves to realize that I don't have the answers. It's, I talk about in my book, it's the beginning of learning how to connect consciously with ourselves is where we meet God, our higher power. And once we start to connect with ourselves in ever, in, in just the slightest honest way, in other words, just the ability to say to yourself, this, whatever this is, this is not working. I'm tired. There's got to be a better way to live. Just connecting with that truth brings us, I believe, into some type of a spiritual connection. And that's what starts to enable us to connect to others in honest ways. And there are people out there who are really willing to say, walk this way. And there's such a parallel between the family side and the ism side in that. And I mean this, if we're fortunate enough to get to the point where we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And can't continue to live. The way we're living. And for me, I just didn't want to ever feel like. That again, that that lowest moment that allowed me finally to get completely honest about the full scope of my ism. I never wanted to feel like that again. Ever. Backside of a third divorce, just never again. But whatever that is for us, I truly believe our bottom. Ism side or family side is when we stop digging. That's when the bottom is. That willingness, genuine willingness is the catalyst for us then to really begin to connect to other people. Because everything that I've ever done to that moment didn't work. And I'm and I and I'm ready. I'm just ready. I'm ready to listen to you. I'm ready to take some suggestions. <laughs> I'm ready to really 
listen to people that thought like I thought, felt like I felt, did what I did and got better. And they've got this unmistakable aura around them. They wear their recovery like a loose fitting garment. And I want that. I want that because I haven't been able to sit in my own skin unaided by chemicals in my entire life. And here you are, an individual that thought like I thought, felt like I felt, did what I did, and you are as comfortable as I've ever seen a human being, and I want that. And so then I'm willing to I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to say, oh, okay. So you 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 do this every morning. I'm gonna try that. You do that every night. I'm gonna try that. You make your bed in the morning. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. I'm just gonna do that and see what happens. If we and and that's when it all begins, right? That's that humility, where we realize our best thinking got us to the place that we're in, which is a place of desperation and there's so many different bottoms Mm. as many people as there are in the rooms that's how many different bottoms there are there's some that are tremendously dramatic yeah and there are others where someone just says i'm done i can't do this anymore i haven't lost a job maybe i haven't even lost a marriage or my children it's just that this is not working right And so that could be a bottom for people. And so when we're on the family side of us, those of us who are on the family side, I want to be really clear that the pain we're living with is as profound because we're as helpless. My drugs of choice were other people. And that's really important for me. And it took a lot for me you know, well-educated, successful to admit that I was addicted to helping people, to being their savior. And as I said before, no one wants to be saved, no one. And so I had to humbly sit with that and say, not only is this not working for me, this is not working for my loved ones. So what do I do? And I, I like to talk about letting go is not a one and done process. The more, <laughs> right? It's like, oh, good. I let go and we are done. Wasn't that good? <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. No. The more I let go, the more I learn to let go. It takes me deeper. Oh, and then I have to let go of that. Oh, And that's controlling too. I had no idea that was controlling. And maybe this is true of the family side, Karen, but I certainly can relate with the saying that goes as follows. Anything an addict or an alcoholic lets go of has claw marks all over it. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I talk about how sometimes all we have to do, and this is very true in my life, is glance in the direction of our higher power. Just glance, It's wink at God, take one little look 
and the invisible hands come and start to peel our fingers off of whatever we were so desperately holding on to. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a process like much of what we do in recovery. It's a process. It is a process. It's one moment at a time and it's allowing ourselves, or at least let me talk about it from my perspective. It's allowing myself to realize I need to check in with other people. I need to accept good orderly direction from other people who have walked this path before me, who are currently walking this path. So I'm in the habit now of really doing a lot of checking in with my trusted people, Mm. my sponsor, especially um, other people that I trust who have what I want to continue to have in my life. And to do that with a tremendous amount of courage, because none of this is easy. Whether you're putting down a drug or a substance or you're stepping away from other people, because other people are your drugs of choice. None of this is easy. It's terrifying. I know I need to stop. I know I need to do something differently, but do I really want to? Because this is all I know. All I know is focusing on other people. All I know is stepping in in the hopes that they feel loved when really what it is, is I'm stepping in as a codependent, as a co-addict to assuage my own anxiety. To not focus on me, to not have to be with myself. Absolutely. If I can focus on you, I am really good. It gives me an opportunity to, to not have to look at what I have to look at deep within me. And in, when I talk about connection in my book, I talk about connection as an emotional, spiritual, and relational synergistic process that allows us to first and foremost connect with ourself in honest ways. Well, that's recovery. Hmm. It reminds me that the fear that I had that kept me sick was rooted in, I don't know what I'll, I don't know how to function without my addiction. I'm not ready to come to grips with it. I'm not ready to admit it to myself that I'm truly an addict. I'm certainly not going to say it out loud to you. I'm going to deny it if you call me one. But deep down inside, I'm terrified of living without this because I don't know how to be me. I don't know how to live inside my own skin without the substances. And it's the same on the family side. I don't know how to function if I am not focusing on you. If I am not, if if that if that's gone, I, I don't know how to deal with life on life's terms, right? And many of us learn that at, at such an early age, we come to it honestly. And so a lot of what turns out to be dysfunctional patterns 
in our adolescence and in our adult lives have its roots in our childhoods. Because we learned in our childhood to do things to gain the approval of people and to feel loved and to feel safe, whatever that is. And we have to hold all of that from my perspective very lightly, Mm. not to beat ourselves up about things that we did to survive in our childhoods and also not to beat up other people, Mm. to let go of the blame. And this is a process. This doesn't happen overnight to let go of the blame and to realize that for the most part, even as traumatic as things were, people were doing the best they could in that moment. So how do we hold all of that lightly, the beautiful and the broken, ourselves and other people? And I think that part of it, again, is learning to connect with ourselves, having spiritual and therapeutic guides, people we can trust in the room, who in the rooms who help us to see we are good, deep inside. I often say to people who are suffering from the disease of alcoholism or addiction, there's who you are at the root in your soul, your heart, and then there's the disease. Mm -hmm. And the disease impacts all of us in ways that we do things that are not in our best interest and that harm us and harm other people. So separating ourselves from the disease is really healthy from where I sit because we take accountability, but we realize our soul and our heart is good. Yeah, without question. And what that reminds me is of a couple of things. Number one, having that grace and self-forgiveness for ourselves, for how we got here and how other people treated us along the way. Understanding, as you well said, that for the most part, by and large, they were doing the best they could with what they had at the time. And sometimes, frankly, that wasn't good enough and that's okay. And that's just the way it is. And having acceptance around that and also having acceptance around the fact that I did the best I could with what I had at the time. And boy, I don't know what would have happened, Karen, if I didn't have drugs and alcohol for most of that time. Right? Honestly, yes. it got me through some 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 really, really, really hard times. I I really am glad you said that, Charlie, because learning to hold our experiences lightly does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that we deny, ignore, sidestep, leapfrog over the trauma. Mm -hmm. It takes time to realize that we don't have to set up camp though in those places, that we have the right and the ability to live happy, joyous, and free, that there is grace for ourselves 
and for other people. And there's also boundaries. There are people mm. that we have to say peace out to. Yeah. And to do that in a way that takes care of ourselves and also is loving. But clearly, peace out can be a phrase that we use for certain people who, for whatever reason, are toxic in our lives. And I think that's really important, too. The whole concept of boundaries, um, in, in some ways, it's overused in our culture. Yeah. But for boundaries is a really serious issue, and no is a holy word. Indeed it is. It's a sentence. And we start to uncover and rediscover our boundaries as we traverse this path of recovery. And Karen, you remind me that for me, the 12 steps at their core for me in my experience when I worked them in order with a sponsor to the best of my ability that they straightened out really key relationships that were all messed up prior to getting in recovery. The first relationship it straightened out was my relationship with my disease. I got to get honest with that. That was key and critical. The second relationship was the relationship with my higher power. Which was all sorts of messed up. It straightened out that relationship. Then I went about the work of straightening out the relationship with myself. Super important. Made tremendous differences in how I felt on a daily basis. And last... And certainly not least, it went about the business of straightening out my relationships with other people. But I couldn't straighten out the relationships with other people, Karen, till I reconciled my relationship with my ism, with my higher power and myself. Oh, yeah. I, we are on the same page about that, Charlie. And so many times people try to straighten out the relationships with other people first. Yes. Right. And yeah, people might have the sense that, that, it, that I have good relationships, that I'm connecting with people, that I have healthy places to go. But I would challenge people to think until you do the work on yourself with your higher power and a trusted sponsor slash guide, those other connections are not what they can be. And they're a substitution for that emotional and spiritual wholeness that can only be found, in my perspective, inside of ourselves with God. No doubt about it. And if I do it in the wrong order, which Karen, I did. So I have unique experience with doing this thing in the wrong order because I got home from my intake at treatment and proceeded to unburden myself to my then wife about all the things that I did wrong that she didn't know about. 
And it wasn't for her benefit. I didn't know that at the time. I thought I was being altruistic. That was all about me. I just was trying to unburden myself because I felt guilty as sin. But I learned and then I started to do the work and then the work started being reflected in my behavior and in my actions. And then I was able to make a proper amend to that individual. And it was a very healing experience because I had done the work. Yeah, because you had done the work. But And, and here's the grace, though, in that. Even at that moment when you came home from your intake and you unloaded, you were still doing the only thing you knew what to do at the time. No doubt. And so many of the, so many things that people do go back to, they were doing the best they knew at the time. Yep. And lots of times it's not good enough. That's and right. often <laughs> it does create harm. Yeah. But, but us human beings are complex and messy and we don't need um, a manual as much as we need to connect to our stories, our messiness, and people who can say, walk this way. So, Karen, as you started walking a different way in recovery, you were already successful. You already had, at least from the outsider's perspective, everything one might want. How did recovery change you, not only personally, but how did it change you in your leadership roles, in leadership capacities? Talk to us a little bit about that. Charlie, it's a day-by-day process. So what I find is my recovery has given me the gift of serenity. I am much more comfortable in my own skin at this point I'm more honest in appropriate ways. It's not like I tell everybody all the gory details, Mm -hmm. but I allow myself to tell a little bit of my story to more people. And it allows them as a result to take my vulnerability and use it as a way, as an invitation to be vulnerable with themselves. So my relationships are better. And the other thing is I'm much more at peace with saying no to people. I really feel like my ability to say, I am no longer going to contribute to this dysfunction or I'm no longer going to believe the lie or I'm no longer going to take care of you to my detriment. I'm no longer going to choose to, I'm no longer going to choose people that I have to fix or who think that I'm going to be their savior. And then when I start trying to save them, they get angry. Mm. So it's just, it's a clarity. It's a comfortableness in my own skin and with my own story. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. One of the greatest gifts that I received 
in my recovery to this point is embracing it as a part of my identity. It's who I am. It's integrated into my core identity. And I celebrate it. And that's empowering. When I can recover out loud, as you said, that gives others permission then to accept their own truth, whatever that might be. Sometimes it's a truth that's similar to mine or adjacent to mine. And sometimes it's not, but it's their truth. And when they see somebody that fully embraces their truth and celebrates it and uses it as a part of their core identity, that's a really empowering way to live. I'm proud, as you were saying, Charlie, I'm proud to have recovery be part of who I am. And one of the things that I have found is that people in my life who are addicts and alcoholics also have a renewed sense of respect for me as I take care of me. It changes the relationship in such powerful ways. And it also gives the people around me the dignity they need to have their own journey. I'm not stepping in saying, well, have you thought of this? Are you sure you want to do that? It's this permission that they too can empower themselves. And I was talking to a client the other day, a C-level executive who was talking about empowering their team. And I asked them to think about empowerment as something that comes from within. We can't empower anybody. And this is recovery. We can create the psychologically safe place in which people can recover or choose recovery and find the empowerment inside of them. And that's what I think the power of connection and recovery does. It helps us to realize I have the tools inside of me and with the help of trusted people like a sponsor and my higher power, I can ignite those. And it reminds me of the dynamic that is at its best in the rooms of recovery, which is leading by example. If I can be the best example of recovery on a day in and day out basis, People are going to want that. That's that's attractive. It's attraction, not promotion. Yeah, it is. And it's not a do-it-yourself program, though, is it? No it's doubt about it. It's not a self-help program. Right. It is connection. It is let us help you in healthy ways. Let us lead you to your own higher power where you can find courage, serenity, and wisdom. We were so disconnected prior to entering recovery, so disconnected from our higher power, from ourselves, 
from our stories, from our identities, from our truth, so disconnected. And we have a tremendous opportunity in recovery to reconnect across all of those. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. And we thought we were connected, though. And that's, that's true. the great lie of addiction. Yes. It okay. is. It is. It is artificial connection. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it's a seductive kind of connection because it keeps pulling us into those dysfunctional things, whatever those things are, drugs, alcohol, other people, sex, whatever, you know, anything in an addictive way, pulling us in. And we're thinking it's connection, but it's not. It's dysfunctional and it takes us apart day by day, our soul, our heart. It just breaks us apart. In your book, The Connected Leader, I want to unpack that word leader. Often we think of a leader as the head of a company or the head of a religious organization or the head of a government. Is that what you mean by leader? No. (laughs) What do you mean by leader? What I talk about in the book about leadership is broadening the definition to include anyone who has people entrusted to their care and who create a psychologically, emotionally safe place in which people can soar. Hmm. So when we think about that, that's a, that could be a stay-at-home parent. It's teachers in a classroom. It's coaches. It certainly can be people in corporate environments and other kinds of organizations and religious institutions, but it's a very important role because as a leader, though, we can only lead other people if we first, Charlie, learn to lead ourselves. And that's the work of connection. And so I talk about the seven strategies that help us to do that, but they all start with ourselves. So the book is really, a lot of people in the recovery community are finding it to be very helpful. And so are people in the business community and people in relationships and families, because I brought in the word leadership to include anybody that wants to deepen the connection to themselves so they can truly learn to connect to other people in healthy, inspiring ways. And is that why leadership and connection have such an important relationship to each other? Is that when we're connected to ourselves in an authentic way, that is the fertile soil, which allows us to begin to connect to others authentically? It surely is. And it's also the fertile soil that allows us to realize in honest, self-compassionate ways, what are the things that I'm doing that are harming myself, harming other people, getting in the way of me living a full, fully joyful life? Because most of us are very tied up in patterns we're stuck in those patterns, mm. right? We're stuck in those patterns. We think we have to keep doing something a certain way. And, and, and 
connecting to yourself allows you to start saying, oh, some of these defense mechanisms, some of these reflexes that I do are not landing well on the people around me. And as a result, I have to do my inner work, the most courageous work, start to unpack the wounds or the trauma, little T or big T that start to get in the way of me being fully present to myself and other people. One of the things that I learned about my higher power, Karen, is that my higher power speaks through other people. If I'm listening. Amen. And if I listen and make that active choice to listen to the people around me, I hear my higher power. And as you said, how my actions are landing and affecting other people. And I have the ability to unpack that and understand if that's working for me, if that's serving me. Is this behavior serving me any longer? Is it helpful? Is this coping mechanism that got me through some hard times? Is this working for me now? Or is it counterproductive in my relationships? And is it harming people? Is it making things more difficult for other people and for myself? And the longer I'm in recovery, the better I am at detecting that. And you know, 12-step might call that a character defect, might call that a counterproductive behavior pattern. However we want to name that, the reality is we have a choice in how we respond versus default react in this world. And And that is not easy to do. But that's the next level stuff that we have the opportunity to begin to do really, as you called it, that that really important work. And I don't know if we ever get done with that. I call it like the low hanging fruit, right? Like there's some stuff that's just super getting in the way, right? (laughs) That we can get, that we can start to work on and it makes a big difference. I think that in our character defects, there is tremendous treasure. I've, Flaws are my jam. I am really into understanding flaws. In some ways, our flaws are flawsome. Flawsome. Because there's awesome treasure as we start to unpack why we do what we do, what's getting in our way, and what's the wisdom in our mistakes. How can I look at this mistake or this character defect and realize I was doing what I needed to do to survive, to get through some painful situations. And so there is wisdom in that, Charlie. What can we take with us on our journey so we don't have to keep doing this, whatever this is, day in and day out? So I think it's really important for us to look at our flaws and our character defects with trusted people and eyes wide open so we can start to build that life that is happy, that is joyous, that is 
free. If we don't heal ourselves, we're likely to bleed on the people around us, right? That's right. (laughs) Uh, And oftentimes on people who didn't cut us. That's true. That is absolutely 100% correct. And we have the opportunity to really then do some inventory around that. And for me, often it's fear, Karen, at the very, very root of that. I'm afraid of something. When a character defects gets out there and it starts cutting me and others, and it's always a double edge, always. It's always a double edged blade, that character, whatever it is, it's always cutting me and cutting them. Always. You know, those fears that we have didn't just happen. Most of us have fears rooted in reality. Like, for instance, with my story, having my mother be diagnosed with a terminal illness when I was 10 created such a sense of insecurity and fear for me because a child's greatest fear in my world was going to come true. I was going to lose the most important person in my life. That happens. And so I built then an entire world around trying to prevent that from happening. I will never, I never want to lose anybody again. So I'm in charge of keeping everybody safe. I'm in charge of keeping everybody sober. I'm in charge of keeping everybody um, tethered to me. And then that way I felt safe, but I wasn't. I was just controlling. It's so interesting to me, Karen. I'll tell you why. I also endured the death of my mother when I was 11 years old from cancer and she got cancer when I was nine. And so I intimately identify with your experience, Mm -hmm. but I reacted in a, in some ways very similar in some ways, very different. I never, ever, ever wanted to feel that way again. So I just kept everybody else at bay. I didn't need God. I didn't need you. I didn't need anybody. Because I can't get that close to somebody again. I can't love like that again because I can't bear a loss like that again. So I made a fateful decision to not depend on other people, to not get too close to other people and to write off God because God took my mom away. And I want no part of a God that would do that. And so I just find that so interesting how that trauma manifested for you versus me. Right. And, We both got sick and connection was at the root of that. And finding our way back to connection, finding our way back to connecting to myself, my higher power and other people was the antidote. Without a doubt. To it. And making that conscious decision every day 
to connect is the antidote. It's a conscious, active, mindful decision to connect. When still seven plus years in recovery, I very much am capable of getting into moods where I don't want to connect to nobody. That still rears its head for me. But I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like when I want to do that. And I can honor that. And I know that sounds a little weird, but I can honor that. It's okay to feel that way and know that I got to connect anyway. And know that even though it doesn't feel like that's the answer, it is. And on the other side of that discomfort is freedom. Isn't it interesting how trauma and our response to it and loss and grief manifest so differently in other people? And yet we're all searching for the same thing. We're searching for connection and we're searching for a way to deal with our pain. And there's just such a variety of ways that people deal with all of that. No doubt about it, but at the root, what we need in order to be well is the same. Yes. Connection. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as you traversed your understanding of connection. One of the things I really enjoy about the way you speak about your experience, Karen, is that you don't tell other people's stories. I think that's so important that we tell our stories and do our level best not to tell the stories of other people because it's their story. Right. And I've heard it called being a double winner. And there's double winners amongst us that are, you know, are both on the ism side and on the family side. And some of us that are on the ism side don't discover we're on the family side until we're a number of years in. Yeah. So yeah. this very well may be reaching people that there's some light bulbs going off. Well, I hope so. You know, again, I believe that addiction is a disease of relationships and we become hardwired to do the very thing that is not healthy for us. We become hardwired to do the very thing that is unhealthy for us. And it is really important that we hold out this message of hope to people every day in every way that we possibly can. To talk about how you came about these seven tenets of empowering ourselves and inspiring others. How did you, you know, and I like that you say that, you know, we don't need another leadership formula, right? Where that's the, the world doesn't need another leadership formula. So that's not what this is, but it's not talk about that. It's, it's really, I've been doing this work with leaders around the world for a good long time. So these seven pillars of connection are a combination of Things that I have observed, Charlie, in my own life with my own story, what works in terms of connection for me, also the very things that I have observed 
that work in organizations with leaders. So it's about learning to listen deeply, but with all of the pillars of connection, the strategies of connection, they all start with yourself. So how do you connect consciously to yourself? How do you listen to yourself? When you do those things, then and only then can you truly show up connecting and listening to other people. One of the tenets is about exhibiting empathy. Well, how do you sell, show yourself empathy? Same thing with curiosity. Same thing with accountability. How in the world can a leader expect the people around him or her to be accountable when they are not being accountable? So all of the, the, the tenets, the pillars, the strategies are really rooted in my own recovery and work in the workplace and work in religious organizations or nonprofit organizations because the common thread in all of these places are human beings exist in these places and work would be easy if it weren't for the people. It occurs to me, Karen, people have really good BS detectors. Mm. <laughs> right? And so we can tell if you're walking the walk and you're practicing what you preach and you are doing the work yourself because that becomes very apparent and it becomes very apparent if you're not. And, and people are likely to be attracted to and inspired by folks who it's clear have leaned in and done the work themselves and are leading from a empathic connected way versus a self-centered disconnected way. And we've both experienced good and bad leaders in our lives. And we don't have to be on this planet very long to have experience with both. And certainly your work, you've had intimate and extensive experience, probably with both. And the connected leader, seven strategies to empower yourself and inspire others, sounds like it's really a product of that experience and really gives you the ability to distill what works. And I think it's really important for us as leaders at home and at work to realize the more we can align our whole self in all the places that we show up, in the rooms, at work, at home, the more we live from a center of connection you know, I recently had a, um, an incident where somebody had told me that they based their entire life on being integrity-based and creating and being safe for other people. And then it came out that this same person had been hugely dishonest for about 15 years. And so you can't say one thing 
and behave in another way and expect people to trust that. So I think the really important thing about the book is for people to realize that there is a way to deepen connection and being a leader is wherever you show up and inspire other people and that it can definitely be in the rooms and we inspire people by how we behave. No doubt about it. And then my day job, I lead a team of people in my fundamental philosophy in my leadership is I, I'm just working really hard to make you successful. That's it. Fundamentally, that's my job is to help you be successful. And if I help you be successful, my success is going to take care of itself. But that's a byproduct. That is 100% a byproduct. It is not my goal. My goal is to help you and to be of service to you. While I work on myself, while I go about the business of being the best example of recovery I can be, and I mean that globally, like I take that in all aspects of my life. I could be the best example of recovery I can be on a daily basis. And some days I do a better job than others. Let's just be really honest about that. But if I can be the best example of recovery, I can be on a daily basis and then focus on how can I help you succeed? I've never had to then fully worry about my own success. It just takes care of itself. Well, that's about practicing these principles in all our affairs, right? Mm -hmm. We can't be recovering in the rooms if we're not taking recovery on the road. Indeed. I have to live it everywhere. I have to live it in all aspects of my life. But that's where the magic is. That's the magic of it. Yeah. Karen, I have some closing questions. Are you ready? Go ahead. What does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of? So I am an early riser, Charlie. Um, I'm a stillness-seeking, coffee-drinking, God-searching early riser. Mm. So I have a really extensive ritual in the morning where I do my meditation readings and I do my 12-step readings and I do my um, Bible reading, all the things that work for me, journaling, mindfulness. It's long. Sometimes it's so long, it feels like it should be lunchtime by the time I'm done. I, I <laughs> really have to ground myself. So it's, it's that. Um, and it's also going to meetings and it's talking to my sponsor and it's reading as much as I possibly can. Um, that keeps my recovery alive and well, and the top priority for me. I love all of that because it's so important to you and I can relate in a lot of aspects and there's meditation in there. There's spiritual readings in there. There's humility work in there. There is gratitude work in there. All of those things to really be connected to myself and my higher power so I can then go about the business of doing the best I can to meaningfully connect to you all is super important to me. It sounds like that's the work that you're doing, which I am all about. What book or piece of recovery literature, or as the cool kids call it, quit lit, 
had the biggest impact on your recovery? It's so hard for me to answer any of these questions where I have to pick one thing. Like I can't tell you what my favorite movie is or my favorite food is. I can't do that. Uh, um, I think at this point, I'm going to go to the Bible and I'm going to tell you that it's probably um, how Al-Anon works, which is the big book version of um, for families. I love it. We'll do two. We'll do the Bible and we'll do how Al-Anon works. I love that. What is the best piece of advice you have received in recovery thus far? Call your sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yeah, man. That's good. What is the greatest challenge you've had in your recovery to date? Letting go of my biggest drug of choice and learning to love in a way that truly sets other people free. That's beautiful. What is your greatest success in recovery thus far? Acknowledging the extent of the impact of the disease on me. It all Mm. starts there. Indeed it does. Yeah. The next one's a doozy. And then we end with a fun one. Okay. What is something, if there is something, and there might not be, you haven't forgiven yourself or somebody else for? Some of my parenting mistakes will haunt me forever. Mm. I can relate. Mm -hmm. And that is such a beautifully imperfect, flawed human experience that's universal is that it's not just like all sunshine and rainbows and we're 100% healed and perfect and that we've patched it all up and everything's great that we could have meaningful, enduring, rewarding recoveries. And still, there's things in our past that are going to be with us for the rest of our lives. And it's a process. And we and we have the opportunity. If you're anything like me, I work on that every day. And some stuff comes back and I work on it and then it goes away. And then other stuff's come back and I work on it and it goes away. And it's this process. And, and that regret or that honesty about those mistakes, whatever we want to call it, does move us forward. Yeah. So that the, our mistakes can stay with us. But again, as I said before, and as you're saying now, Charlie, it can also be part of our healing. Mm-hmm. And as we learn to take what we're learning from those situations and our regrets and our mistakes and mm, heal from them, yeah. show up differently. It gives us an opportunity to continue to forgive ourselves and practice that self-forgiveness and 
continue to live in a different way, as you said, and that's just all beautiful. Yeah, it's grace. It's grace. Grace walking. Indeed it is. Here's the fun one. What song symbolizes recovery to you? Rescue by Lauren Daigle. And we have not had that one on the Way Out podcast as of yet. So that's amazing. Rescue by Lauren Daigle. That will be on the Way Out podcast Spotify curated playlist when this episode launches. So that will be tremendous. We will have Karen's book recommendations in the show notes. So check those right now. We will have Karen's song recommendation in the show notes. So check that out right now. We will have Karen's contact information and all about how to learn more about her new book, The Connected Leader, Seven Strategies to Empower Your True Self and Inspire Others. That'll be in the show notes. So check that out right now. Karen, thank you so much for being on the Way Out podcast. This was great. It was great. So appreciate the time with you. Thank you. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out podcast land. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of the Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.